It was almost time for the Passover festival, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. found people selling cattle, sheep, and pigeons, and also the money changers sitting at their table. out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered their coins. He ordered those who sold pigeons. Take them out of here! Stop making my father's house a marketplace! His disciples remembered that the scripture says, My devotion to your house, O God, burns in me like a fire. The Jewish authorities came back at him with a question. What? miracle can you perform to show us that you have the right to do this? Tear down this temple, and in three days I will build it again. Are you going to build it again in three days? It has taken 46 years to build this temple. But the temple Jesus was speaking about was his body. So when he was raised from death, his disciples remember that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and what Jesus had said. Well, that might challenge the mental picture we have of Jesus a little bit, doesn't it? But before we get into that, i got to get something off my chest. I have to share a public grievance. I'm sorry to have to do this, Pastor Ken, but it is with Pastor Ken. And um, you may recall three weeks ago we started this fall series, and he said then that we would go through the Gospel of John and we would do one chapter per week. And then he kind of said, well, that's kind of the intro, and I'll do one more on chapter one. And then he did... A third message on chapter one. Then he turns to me and said, you got chapter two. 
one message. <laughs> yeah. And, and I know that I would love to do two messages on chapter 2, but I can't do two messages on chapter 2 because he's already working on his message for chapter 3 for next week. And uh, when I left here Friday afternoon, I went into his office and I said, you know, I think you're further ahead for next week's sermon than I am for this week's sermon. So that's where uh, a little insight into how we work. But one message per chapter, you know how hard that is? I mean, if you are in your Bibles and John's Gospel, and I encourage you to just follow along if you have your Bible with you today, you know, look at just what we're missing from chapter 1. Understanding John the Baptist, what his role was, what he did. Um, John calling Jesus the Lamb of God and the significance of that statement and what that means for us today. The calling of the first disciples, Andrew and Peter. The calling of Philip and Nathaniel as disciples as well. And then the beginning of chapter 2, if you've looked there now, you know that uh, the beginning of chapter 2 starts with the first recorded miracle of Jesus, the changing of water to wine, which of course would be a great passage to study. There's so much good stuff there, and so it's hard to decide. But we're in this series called Taking Jesus Seriously. And in it, what we're attempting to do is to see Jesus for who he really is, and then to take him seriously. And in John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25, we see a side of Jesus that might be a little unfamiliar to us. And in this historic event, Jesus makes a serious mess of the temple and then makes a very serious statement. Why? And what can we learn about who Jesus is? And what can we learn about ourselves? I've tried to capture these thoughts this morning just under the simple title of cleansing. Cleansing, if you follow kind of health magazines or shows or whatever, is kind of a popular thing these days, right? There's all sorts of juice cleanses and different things that you can do and like colon cleanses. Sorry for that mental image that I just gave you, but, um, you know, there's uh, Dr. Oz even uh, advertises, are you ready for the ultimate detox solution? Dr. Oz's 48-hour cleanse will revitalize you from the inside out. And no, he was not referring to a colon cleanse. He was referring to a detox diet. There I go again. But there are even spiritual cleanses. Um, But don't, Trust me, don't Google that. The initial ones I looked at looked more than a little wacky. So just leave that alone. But Jesus, in John chapter 2, does the ultimate cleanse. And if we understand why and what it means, it's ultimately very good for us. So what's going on here? Let's ask the questions, where did this take place? When did it take place? And why? Why were the activities going on in the temple courts? And why was Jesus so infuriated? In John chapter 2, this is John's record of a historic event in the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke also record a temple cleansing. But that one takes place just before Jesus' crucifixion. Now, there is some scholarly debate about whether there was one cleansing or two. But I have to tell you that my simple mind likes to just take things at face value. 
For me, it's much easier to accept that there were two cleansings than to try to explain why John's was at the beginning of Jesus' ministry and the other gospel writers had the event near the end, in fact, just days before his crucifixion. John explains that the time of this event in the life of Jesus was the celebration of the Jewish Passover. Verse 13 reads, It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. And Jesus had been to Jerusalem many times before, but never as the Messiah, as the promised one to come. As a child, he went with his parents. We read in Luke chapter 2, verse 41, that every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. And you may recall that when he was 12, he stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents didn't even realize that he hadn't come back with them until they were already on their way home. He had experienced all of the sights and sounds of the Passover year after year after year. This was a very familiar scene to him. Now, if you want to read about the original Passover, and I want to just say a word about it because it kind of fits into the whole context of this, you can find that in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 30. Uh, This was a monumental event in Jewish history. For this is when God had declared a plague on all the firstborn in Egypt, that they would in the night die. But God instructed Moses to have all the Jewish families take a one-year-old lamb, a lamb that was perfect without any scars or blemishes, that they would take that lamb, they would slaughter it, they would take some of the blood, and they would put it on the sides and on the tops of the door frames of their homes. And then... When the Lord sees this blood, he will pass over that home. They were identifying themselves as the Jews. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but just read it for yourself if you haven't read it for a while or if you're not sure what I'm talking about. But in that passage, there were also instructions on how to purify the homes of any impurities, how to remove any yeast that would possibly cause any fermentation and those kind of things. And the point is this. Jesus went to Jerusalem for the Passover celebrations. This was a very familiar experience for him. But this time, things were different. Now, he saw what he always saw. Verse 14, in the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. The temple area that is referred to here where he saw this taking place is the court of the Gentiles, which was an area that surrounded the temple proper. And I don't know if you can see that, but um, it's the best I could do. It's this picture of Jerusalem in the upper rectangular in the upper right is the, the whole um, uh, temple area. You can see the, the temple proper in the middle of that, and then there's a large courtyard uh, around it. And in that large open area that we see there, the merchants were were, um, providing an important service for those that had traveled long distances to Jerusalem. If you've been, uh, you know, it would have been a pain for them to try to herd cattle or sheep or to bring doves along on the journey. So they were basically able to buy on, you know, location as it were, the, the animals that they needed for their sacrifices instead of, you know, hauling them along. And so this was a good thing, right? So far, so good. And also, once a year, every Jewish male had to go to the temple to pay a temple tax. 
they were required to pay a half shekel tax. But this tax couldn't be paid in Roman or Greek coins, but it had to be a special temple coin. So they had to exchange the coins that they had that they would bring with them for this special temple coin so that they could pay the tax in the proper currency. Therefore, there was the presence of these money changers. So, in other words, the money changers and the merchants, they were necessary. They, they provided a vital service. And this was big business. Maybe the video didn't fully capture this, but it was estimated that over 2 million people would descend on Jerusalem for the Passover. This was a major, major convention. The place is jam-packed. There's selling and buying and money exchanging going on. It was all good. Or so it seemed. Jesus walks into this scene. And now reading from verse 15. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and the cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then, going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. You you saw it in the video, the, the anger. It was swift and passionate, clear and effective. But it wasn't abusive. He was just making a very clear point by just absolutely tearing the place apart. He, he had about himself a, a righteous indignation, and he wasn't about to hold back. Now, that's probably not a Jesus we're used to seeing or very familiar with. And maybe it even challenges our preconceived understanding of Jesus. I mean, some people have even gone to great lengths to sort of debate the rightness of his actions. Some have actually tried to say, well, you know, maybe he didn't really do what he did. Or, or they even tried to explain why, why he shouldn't have done what he did. <laughs> I don't really know what to say to that, but come on, really? Can't we just accept that maybe Jesus, at least this once, wasn't Mr. Nice Guy after all? Maybe there were certain things that rightfully ticked him off. And he wasn't just trying to make a scene here. He was making a point. Lots of them. So why did Jesus do what he did? Well, for starters, we know what he said. He was incredibly angry because by doing business in this temple complex, rather than maybe outside on the streets leading to the temple area... They, by doing this activity there, disrupted the worship of non-Jewish God-fearers, or the Gentiles. And that's why that area was designated for the court of the Gentiles, it was called. Because they couldn't go into the the temple itself. So they had to worship on these outside courts. And because this activity is going on, they were prevented from doing this. And so the very purpose for which the temple existed was obstructed. You know, God's house, as it were, was contaminated. Which was kind of ironic, really, given the fact that these religious leaders, they would have meticulously cleansed and purified their homes for the Passover, because they would have taken that very seriously. But not when it came to the temple. But there was more to it than that. Those selling the animals for the sacrifices were known to be charging more than they should have. 
If the street value of a dove was 10 cents, kind of on the way to the temple, once they got into the temple, it was like 10 times that, maybe even more. So they were simply being dishonest, and they charged these inflated prices for the sacrifices. And there was another practice that these shysters were notorious for. Now, I was, when I said that, when I, I thought, can I use that word in church? And, and so I had to look it up just to make sure. Um, and, and I, sorry, this is completely aside, but I thought it was hilarious. The definition, if you Google this, is this. A person, especially a lawyer, who uses unscrupulous, fraudulent, or deceptive methods in business. Sorry to all the lawyers that are out there. I really only know one. That's Bob Teske, and I know he's in Europe, and he probably won't listen to this message. And uh, we have a lot of fun, and I know Barry Coswin collects uh, uh, lawyer jokes. Um, So there you go. You see a picture of a lawyer beside the definition. Anyways, I digress. But here's what they were notorious for. If you did bring your own sacrifice, because some people would have, they would have these inspectors who would check the creatures to make sure that they were without any blemishes. And guess how many passed inspection? I don't know either, but I doubt very many. Like, like they would take the, the thing, they would look at it and go, mm, sorry, doesn't cut it. But, but right over there, you can buy another one to replace this one. It's going to cost you 10 or 20 times what you probably paid for this one, but sorry, that's just the breaks. That's what you got to do, and we'll just take care of this for you here. And, and, and in some instances, that was even suggested that maybe, you know, your sheep with the blemish became someone else's perfect lamb. That was the kind of unscrupulous fraudulent, deceptive practices that were going on. And the money changers, of course, they charged high fees for their service. And so this whole practice, this whole activity is filled with dishonesty. And Jesus had had enough. People were getting rich because of a system of worship. And people who were coming to worship were being hindered in doing so. And it was full of hypocrisy as well. Because these people had lost sight of the ultimate object of worship. They got caught up in the process of it. And what they religiously followed in their own homes wasn't even a consideration for the temple. There's another word for what was taking place that might help us understand this. Exploitation. The people were being taken advantage of. And often this was the poorest of the poor. This, in Jesus' eyes, was an injustice that needed to be corrected. These people came, they needed a sacrifice to to, to offer, and they had no option but to pay the high inflated charges. They had to pay the tax. So they had to pay the exorbitant exchange rates and fees and whatever else went with it. And Jesus could not stand for it any longer. He was righteously indignant. And so he took this drastic and dramatic action. 
you know, as I thought about us trying to understand that, the closest I could come to was thinking about traveling through an airport. And the same burger at A&W that you can buy on the local A&W for four bucks costs you six or seven in the airport. Have you noticed that? Right? Coffee is twice what it might cost you outside of security. Right? It, it, it's just, they got you going. And then those little people, like, oh man, I forgot to get U.S. cash. What are we going to do now? And they got those little booths set up. Right? And, and there's fees and the, the exchange rate is higher. You know, it's a big business. And you feel kind of ripped off if you get stuck in that situation. And that's exactly what was happening to the people who came to the temple at Passover to celebrate this feast. What a scene, eh? And, and uh, I wanted to show that video just to try to put that graphic in our, in our minds. And of course, you know, like any depiction of that, do they really capture it? I mean, there's some artistic licenses. There's others who say, well, he, he didn't actually, you know, release the doves because they would never capture those and all the other things they could have herded up. And so he, you know, he just made a point, but it wasn't like he, he you know, had this huge dramatic uh, impact on them other than making his point. But can you imagine his disciples? And they didn't really show it in there, I don't think. I was trying to watch, but what would his disciples have done in that moment? Thought about that? I mean, just probably absolutely stood there in stunned silence. Mouth wide open. Maybe some of them even thought, I bet you Peter was like, all right, here we go. This should be really good. Maybe they were embarrassed. I mean, at, at this point, they hadn't been with Jesus very long. Who is this crazy man? We've given up everything to follow him, and this is what he does? Maybe they were a little fearful as well. <laughs> oh boy, we're in trouble now. Verse 17 tells us how this impacted his disciples. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from the scriptures. Passion for God's house will consume me. Passion for God's house will consume me. And this prophecy about Jesus comes from Psalm 69, verse 9, which is one of many messianic psalms, or psalms which refer directly to the life of Jesus and are often quoted in the New Testament. And Psalm 69 describes the suffering and the agony of the one who was to be the Messiah. This act, this cleansing of the temple, was also prophesied by Malachi in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. We won't take the time to read it, but you can read it on your own. It's interesting to note that when Jesus was doing this, no one really stood up to him and stopped him. No, no one said, you, you, you can't really do that. But if he was an ordinary guy, they, they probably would have nailed him to the wall. They would have captured him. But this was Jesus. And yes, they would eventually nail him to a tree. But, but what's going on? This exchange that starts to take place between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders. It seems that maybe they understood that Jesus had a moral authority to cleanse the place. But they wanted to debate him anyway. In verse 18, But the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. Show us a miraculous sign to prove it. 
Now, I find that absolutely amazing. Because really, how blind could they be? How defensive? Because the Jews, they had expected specific signs that would signal the arrival of the Messiah. And here, Jesus fulfills Malachi's prophecy that they would have been well aware of, that the Messiah would cleanse the temple, and they still don't get it. But instead, because their greed and their selfishness is exposed, they try to turn the tables on him. Instead of being ashamed or grieved over their sin, they choose to challenge his authority, but not his actions. He touched their mess, and they pushed back. Who do you think you are? Show us a sign. Prove it. All right, Jesus replied, verse 19. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus does give them the only sign that would have any meaning to them. The sign of his own resurrection. And because these Jewish religious leaders are so dense, they actually take him literally and they they actually start to ridicule Jesus. What? They exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days? In other words, what you are suggesting is an architectural impossibility. But verse 21 then explains what Jesus actually meant. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And note too that before we think it's just the religious leaders that missed this, even his own disciples missed it. They didn't catch what he actually meant by this statement until after the resurrection. When the risen Savior stood among them. That's what John admits here in verse 22. He says, now after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. I mean, they finally realized what Jesus meant by destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days after the resurrection. Can you imagine this a little bit? The day they see that he's among them and he's alive, they're like, hey, 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 three days, I will raise it up. Listen, that's that temple thing that he was talking about. That's what he said in the temple. Remember when he was going crazy and was all nutty and we were all embarrassed and scared? That's what he meant. He meant the temple was his own body. It wasn't the building. I get it, our bodies now are the real temples of God. No building, no facility is the house of God. Even the temple in Jerusalem was not really the house of God. Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, acknowledged that fact. He said, why? Even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And so Jesus, by making this statement, reminds us that the real temples are now human beings. This is where God has created a place where he can dwell. 
And the Apostle Paul captured this truth when he reminds us, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. So what are some things that we can take away from this event in the life of Jesus? I'm just going to bullet form a bunch. Maybe there was a few things already. I can only trust that the Holy Spirit has already maybe impressed something on your heart that said, you know, yeah, that that caught me. That hit me. I need to respond to that in some way. But here's a few, and I don't think these are even exhaustive, but they're ones that just sort of came to me as I had studied this passage. And the first is just simply this. Jesus is the Messiah the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. He fulfilled many, many Old Testament prophecies, over 350 prophecies. He is who he said he is. And so we should take him seriously. Friends, let's not miss who he really is. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. And can we declare, as John the Baptist did, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect once and for all sacrifice for sin. And by cleansing the temple, Jesus was essentially saying this, the repeated animal sacrificial offerings of Judaism would be replaced by the one and once for all offering of himself by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in death and resurrections. And it is his death and his sacrifice that we are going to remember this morning. And my question is simply this. Do you believe that? Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. Destroy this temple. And in three days, I'll rise it up. Do you believe this? Have you trusted in Jesus? And when I say, do you believe, it's not just, you know, yeah, he existed. Or it's not just, you know, knowledge of his existence. But it's trusting in him as if your very life depended on it. Because it does. If you haven't trusted Christ, do you, as we sang earlier, hear him calling? He's calling you by name. I, I, I know that there are many, many people here, hundreds, who could say there was a day. And it might have been at camp. It might have been in a service. And as the speaker was speaking and he was talking about Christ calling me, I heard a clear and audible, that's you. Ken, I'm calling you. Ed, I'm calling you. Brad, I'm calling you. And if he's calling you, won't you respond? I'm going to leave that with you, and I want you to think about that. Because if you haven't trusted Christ, having these elements in remembrance of what he did for you doesn't really make sense. And so it's okay, just let the element pass. You're processing this, that's okay. 
That's what we want you to do. Come and find out about who Jesus was. And if you have trusted him, and you've given your life to him, then worship him. We, we, we come and we, we join our hearts and our voices and our minds in singing unanimously and together to the praise and glory of God. That's why we're here. And so we shout it out. We sing. And we serve him. And we live for him. Because Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ. Secondly, I would say this, that there are some things that should arouse a righteous anger in followers of Christ. There are some things that should tick us off. When we see injustice in our world, it should motivate us to action. Not complacency. We can't just sit on our hands do nothing about it when we see injustices done. Stand up for the things that Jesus would stand up for. Poverty. You know, some of the things that are happening around the world in terms of like sex trades and all of that kind of stuff. It's a new form of slavery. And there are people that are giving their lives to these causes. And as followers of Jesus Christ... We should stand with them and pray with them and support them and wherever we can, get involved. Find out about international justice ministries or other organizations like that. But do something. Because when we see it, it should anger us. It should tick us off. And that should motivate us to do something. Thirdly, our bodies are the temple of God. Simple reminder, but it's important. This building that we meet in, it's not the church. I thought about this this week, you know, come to church, I come down the street and I see Twilliger Community Church, and it's wrong. Sorry, Pastor Ken, I know we, the architects and the design company, or the design team came up with that. Just say Twilliger Community Church meets here. So if you're a graffiti artist and you want something to do this afternoon... Just kidding. But that's it. Twilliger Community Church, we are the church. And we meet here Sunday mornings, 10 a.m. Worship together. Have brunch. Encourage one another. Because those who believe in Jesus Christ have become the temple of the living God. And God is everywhere present. And where we are, He is there too. So don't think that somehow God's presence is sort of dwelling here and he stays here while we go home the rest of the week and then we come back next week and we meet with God again. No. Because the Holy Spirit is within us and he goes wherever we go. That might scare us a little bit. Because I think that there are probably certain things that we might do outside of this place that we wouldn't do here. Because we don't think he's with us. But he is with us. Fourthly, then what are the things that clutter and pollute our temples? What are the things? Maybe they're attitudes. 
particular sin, selfishness, greed, pride. Please understand this. That the God who is calling us by name, that the God to whom we have come, he is loving and he's healing and he accepts and he understands and he touches our lives with forgiveness and cleansing. But he also wants to cleanse our lives of all sin and the things that hinder our worship of him. I believe it's the writer of Hebrews that says, so then let us throw off everything that hinders us and run the race marked before us. If we are the temple of God and there's stuff in this temple that God would want to chase out, then let's chase it out. And here's the thing. Before we think we kid ourselves, the last thing I'll say, Jesus already knows what's in our hearts. He already knows what's in our hearts. Verses 23 to 25 are basically a transition from this event and the cleansing of the temple to Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in chapter 3 and then even the Samaritan woman in chapter 4. And uh, Pastor Ken is going to cover those next week and the following week, chapter 3 and chapter 4. But let me read these verses anyways. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them. Interesting statement, eh? They trusted him, but he didn't trust them. Because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. He knew that they would be fickle. He knew that a sign wasn't going to be enough because he gave them a sign and they still missed it. And so maybe we, like the hymn writer says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. He knows that's in our hearts. So why get defensive with him if he starts to challenge and chase and push out those things in our lives? Why not with him acknowledge the junk in our hearts and confess it and repent from it, turn away from it and turn to Jesus to be embraced by him and not chased out by him. See, the Bible talks about God refining us to remove the impurities in our lives. Refiners fire, right? The the the. the the heating up of the gold so the impurities surface so they can scrape off the impurities. And it was John, the writer of this gospel, who also wrote in 1 John 8, 1, 8 and 9, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we, if we confess our sins, friends, he is faithful and he's just and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, that's the work that God, through the Holy Spirit, wants to do in all of our lives. He he wants to purify us and cleanse us. And sometimes he has to storm into our lives, into our hearts, into our temple, as it were, make a mess, turn some tables, and chase the junk out. Like a cancer surgeon who, who wants to see his patient fully restored. Sorry, a cancer surgeon. Did I say patient? The cancer surgeon who is cutting the cancer out of the patient because he wants to see the patient restored. Because he cares. And so may we, 
like David did. And we basically finish where we started off this morning from Psalm 51. May we, like David, pray, God, create in me a pure heart. See, because on the cross, Jesus died to take the penalty that sinners deserved and extended to us his love, his grace, his forgiveness. Let's not debate him or challenge him, but let's thank him. Thank him. Thank him for what he's done. And that's the opportunity that we have when we gather around this table. Because it's a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. And he's cleansed us. And he's purified us. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. The servers who are going to help serve these elements as well to come. And Pastor Ed's going to come and just lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving for these elements. And so, let's pray, church. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your son. We thank you for giving us access to be with you again through your son. We thank you for your son who has shown forgiveness towards us, who has cleansed us from our filth, from our sins. Lord, and though, yes, we are, we do have the, we, we are prone to wander. And Lord, we feel it, God. But Father, more than anything, may we find great comfort, Lord, that you would take our hearts and seal it. You would seal it for thy courts above, that we would rest upon that. Father, we thank you that, that um, no matter how fall or how far we may fall short, Lord, that you welcome us, you invite us, you accept us, you desire us, you want us. And Lord, one great way is to invite us to the, to the banqueting table, Lord, to invite us to this beautiful table where whether we are rich, whether we are poor, whether we are sick, whether we are healthy, whether we are strong or weak, you invite all who would believe. And so we say thank you, God. This time, this time of communion is not one of sorrow where we feel guilty for you dying on the cross for us because of our shortcomings. But it's also a time of celebration where we can say thank you for forgiving us, though we do not deserve this at all. Thank you for accepting us. Thank you for calling us by name. Thank you. Thank you. That we can par- take part in this wonderful feast, not because we deserve it, but because you simply love us and show us grace. So we, may we approach the table, may we partake in this communion, not with heavy hearts, but with thankful hearts, hearts that we want, hearts that want to remain silent, but also shout in celebration. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.